Do we believe that God organises things? Yes. We believe that God organises things? Yes. Now, how long has it been since I've had the privilege of preaching up here? Been a few weeks? Has it not? A few months at least. A couple of months? And yet, the Bible reading we had today fits exactly with what I'm speaking about because the Bible reading we had today records the arrest of Christ and I'm now speaking on what happened immediately after that point of time. So God organises things much better than we could because you know, he's better at it than we are. And that's why we let him do it. We're going to be having a look at the initial trial of Christ before the Sanhedrin and the high priests. Interesting stuff. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts and minds Open the word of God to us. Have us, Lord, to understand what happened those years ago and what it means to us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, those of us who were uh, prayer meeting, prayer meeting, yes, on Wednesday we talked about the Sanhedrin. Because they were these guys who were arresting Peter and John. Okay? Who were they? What gave them the right to do this? And just, you know, who who, who said they could do this sort of stuff? Okay. The Sanhedrin. It was a combination of Parliament, Supreme Court, and College of Cardinals. That's how you'd imagine it today. Okay? It consisted of the representatives of the Jewish people, the elders, that is the heads of the families and clans, the scribes, that is the the learned people of the day, the men of wisdom and learning, and the priests, the heads of the families of the tribe of Levi, they were all put in together. Nominally, the Sanhedrin had 71 people in it. Now, they got that idea from back in Numbers 11. If you ever wondered why they picked that that number... Numbers 11, verse 16, says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. Okay, so that was the idea. Seventy of the leaders of, uh, of the nation were gathered together, and these were to assist Moses in the, in the, the running of the, the nation. So, 
In no way, in no stretch of the imagination was this an actual continuance of, of those 70. But it was, that's where they got the idea from. Okay? And, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea. A representation of, for the people, a, a, a way to govern Israel. Um, so they got them together and there was 70 plus a non-voting president or head. And of course, like all good rules of order, you had uh, an uneven number, so you couldn't get a tie. And if there was a tie, the president always voted in the negative against it. Right? So he would always vote for an acquittal. He would always vote to turn down a suggestion. It was fairly simple and, and straightforward, and most of us would recognise that sort of a structure. They also had a minimum quorum. And that minimum quorum was 23. And again, we would thought, hang on, shouldn't that be 7, yeah, 32? No, it works this way. And this lets you know the way these people thought. <laughs> and it's just amazing, the, the logic they follow. The minimum number of male Jewish people you need for a group is 10. Ten men for a minya. It's, it's the number needed for a funeral, for a wedding, for whatever. You need ten. So they said, well, you need the whole community to either convict or acquit. So that means you need twenty. Hang on. <coughs> a simple majority can't either convict or uh, absolve. So that means you need eleven in each group, which means you need twenty-two. But 22 is an even number, you can get a tie, so you need 23. So that was their logic. 23 was the minimum number of the Sanhedrin. The very word Sanhedrin, actually we're probably pronouncing it a bit wrong. I'm not going to stop pronouncing it that way. It comes from a very similar word to the word synagogue. So it was probably more pronounced Sunhedrin. Okay? From the Greek, sin, sun, meaning together. It's the where we get the word, I said synagogue, where we get the term for the uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Okay, it means a similar group or a, a togetherness. And it means to sit down together, to assemble, to be gathered together in one place. Sanhedrin. Now, who headed up this lot? Nominally, it was the high priest. Who was he? Well, you think that would be a, a simple question. But nothing happening in Judea in the first century was simple. This was not a simple question. In 6 AD, Judea became a Roman province and a high priest was appointed. His name was Annas, Annas the son of Seth. He was appointed by Cyrenus, who was the governor of 
Syria and Judea. If the name sounds familiar, it should. Name ringing a bell with anybody? Have a look over in Luke chapter 3. Sorry, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. Same bloke. Same guy who organised the census that sent Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem appointed this guy, Annas, as high priest. (coughs) So... He continues on till about 15 AD. Well, by then, the current Roman governor had had quite enough of this person for various things, including corruption, sedition, um, general bad governance. He threw him out and said, we're going to have to have another high priest. The guy who got the job was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. However, that gave you a problem. Because if you look in Numbers, and we won't turn there particularly, but if you look in, in Numbers, um, it says, Numbers 35, verses 25 and 28, if you want a reference for it, that the high priest continued until his death. (coughs) So strictly speaking, the high priest couldn't be deposed. He could only die. Now, I'm quite sure that the Roman governor was quite happy to arrange that if he was pushed to it, but he preferred just to sack him. So we had some people in Judea were saying that Annas is the high priest, still, because he hadn't died. Some people were saying, no, Caiaphas is now the high priest because he's in charge and the Romans are saying so. So you get the effect of what you find in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, if you're still there, look over. When it gives the date of John the Baptist's preaching, it says now in the Luke chapter 3 verse 1, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Traconius, and Licinius the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. You notice, Luke is careful to point out that at this point, there were two high priests in Israel. Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So it's quite likely that Annas was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the president of the Sanhedrin, while his son-in-law Caiaphas had the more ceremonial role running the temple. Okay? If you want good, accurate history, read Luke. 
He's got that. You, when you read that passage in Luke chapter 3, he nails it down exactly when this was happening. The detail is, is just amazing. <coughs> so we have the Sanhedrin. And it's in, being run by Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was not a great improvement on Annas, not as far as the Romans were considered. But there they were. And they have sent this group of people to arrest Jesus. Now, please understand this was not these were not Roman soldiers this was not Roman arrest <coughs> this was an arrest by a group of probably what we would call temple guards they were a, a small group their job was to protect public property uh, prevent crime patrol Somewhat similar to a police force, but nowhere near as well organised and certainly nowhere near as well trained. They were permitted there simply as a, a, a public order measure. So they were sent. However, we're going to look now at several important things because I want to look at, in fact how illegal and improper the arrest of Jesus was, the arrest and trial, just how wrong it was. You ever considered that? That the very arrest of Christ was improper and illegal. They had no right to do it. First of all, there was no arrest warrant. There was no arrest warrant. Have a look in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. In Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, it talks about Paul or Saul arresting people. Right? Acts 9, 1 and 2. It says, and Saul yet... Um, Yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. You notice that? Letters from the high priest saying, arrest these people, Tie them up and bring them back to Jerusalem. What these were were in fact arrest warrants. You can't arrest someone unless there has been a warrant of arrest issued. Now if you remember back to what Jesus said to these people, we had it in the, in the, uh, uh, the reading this morning. He said to them, I was every day teaching in the temple. If you wanted to arrest me, why didn't you come then? Why? Because they had no arrest warrant. Now, when can you arrest without a warrant? 
And the answer is simply, when you find someone committing a crime, that is the only time you can arrest without a warrant. Trust me, I know this one. It's under section 458 and 459 of the Crimes Act, if you want to get specific. You must find a person committing. It's called fines committing. You don't have it, you can't arrest without a warrant. What did they find Jesus doing? What was he doing? What crime was he committing when they found him? He was praying. Wow, there's a crime. There was no crime being committed. They had no warrant. The very arrest was illegal. Under Jewish law, it was illegal. So, they, they take him and arrest him illegally... And they take him where? Now this is again where it gets interesting. They take him, first of all, not to the high priest, but actually they take him to Annas' place, Annas' house. Have a look over in... Um, Luke. So check it. Sorry, in John, John eighteen, John eighteen, verse twelve, John chapter eighteen, twelve. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. They took him to someone who had no authority. The Romans had declared this man is no longer high priest. So they took him before a judge which had no authority. That's illegal. You can't do that. The judge has got to have authority, and he had none. So they take him before an, an unauthorized judge who then sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. When is this? Now remember, this is happening about... 9, 10 o'clock at night. Okay? At night. And where is it happening? Now, if you get the chance to go to, to uh, Israel, you actually get to stand in the ruins of Caiaphas's house. They're pretty certain this is the one. So you're standing there in, looking down at the foundations of Caiaphas's house. How long do you think it would have taken to, to move him from Annas' place to Caiaphas' house? About two minutes. Why? Because they lived in the same complex. Remember, families didn't live in individual houses very much in those days. They lived in a, in a 
an extended family complex. So it's almost certain that on one wing you would have had Annas's house, you go to the central main wing, that's Caiaphas's place, in the same complex. Furthermore, you would have walked into the place and there would have been a central courtyard and the various wings of the house. We hear, if you're still there in John, that in John in, in John 18, 15, and Simon Peter followed. And so did another disciple. And that disciple was known under the high priest and went in with, with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. What we're having here is that you have to understand what it means to be in the house and in the house. Peter went into the courtyard. That's where everybody was standing around. That's where they had the fire going. In that sense, he was in the house. But Jesus was taken into the house, into the building. So you could be in the house, but not in the house. If you understand what I'm I'm saying here, there was the house which was the complex and there was the actual building where people lived. Okay? House can mean both of these. Peter and what happened with him is a it's worth another sermon on its own. So we'll we'll leave that pretty much alone. But they've gone to the complex where Caiaphas and Ananias lived. And we said it was about nine, ten o'clock at night. Well, here's the problem. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to assemble at night time to try. They could assemble to discuss, to debate, whatever. No problem. But a trial could not be held at night. It was illegal. This was so that all the evidence could be examined in daylight. I think, well... What's the point about that? Well, one of the simple reasons was that evidence, especially physical evidence, the lighting system wasn't that good. And you really needed good light to examine physical evidence. So they made a decision. You had to have your trials during daylight when you can see what's being presented. It was illegal because there was no arrest warrant. It was illegal because it was being held at night. It was also illegal to hold a trial during Passover week. No trials during Passover week. They were high days. They were holy days. You couldn't hold a trial then. That's three reasons this trial is illegal. Next... And this is where it gets just John chapter, still in John chapter 18, verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his doctrine and of his disciples and of doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort. And in secret, I have said nothing.
you ever anybody sort of been to court um you know i i was asked one time uh i i'd actually did a uh, a series of, of workshops called a moot court where you uh go in and you pretend to be a prosecutor or you pretend to be a defendant i pretended to be a defendant uh and it was great fun um because it's it's serious but it's not too serious and uh so i was a i was a criminal for a day and um i think i got off but uh the whole thing is you you do this to understand the way it works the way the system works now the way the sanhedrin the way the trials work there the first argument is always to be from the defense we, now, we normally have the first argument is from the prosecution. But no, they had the first argument was always from the defence and that enabled the defence to put forward basically a motion that there was no case to answer. And yet here, the first motion, the first, first uh, procedure is from the prosecution. That's illegal. That trial should have been aborted then. Not a legitimate trial. No case to answer. Secondly, or thirdly, fourthly, in verse 21, he said, Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What have I said unto them? Behold, they know what I've said. It is illegal under Jewish law to convict a person of a capital crime on only their own testimony. You can't do it. You must have corroborating evidence. They didn't have any. The trial, the conviction is illegal. Again, and look, this just keeps going. You could not conclude a trial in one day. Not right. Because what they said you should have to do is if you conclude the evidence in one day, you need to assemble the next day after you've considered the evidence before you render a verdict. Alright? But here, they're having an arrest, a trial and a verdict in a few hours, the minimum time to convict, try and execute a person under Jewish law was two days. From an arrest at nine o'clock at night to a conviction and a crucifixion by three o'clock the next day, it's what? 18 hours? It's illegal. You're not allowed to do it. But yet they trampled upon their own law. These are the people who said, we uphold the law of the fathers. They trampled on their own law to have him executed. The Sanhedrin actually didn't have the authority for a death sentence. 
have a look over in in uh, in Luke. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Sorry, we'll, we'll try another one. Matthew. Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse, starting at verse 63. But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of heaven and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, He hath spoken blasphemy. What need have we further of witnesses? Behold, ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. The, the Sanhedrin did not have the authority for a death sentence. They didn't have the authority for a death sentence. They could convict, they could try, they could punish people with fines and imprisonments and all sorts of things. They didn't have the right to a death sentence. That was reserved for Rome. So they sentenced him to death with no authority. No authority. But wait, there's more. It's almost like, you know, steak knives, isn't it? But wait, there's more. There's worse. The Sanhedrin met was to meet in an area called the, the Hall of Hewn Stones in the temple itself. There was a special building for the Sanhedrin to meet in. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to have a trial in a private house. They could meet, to, as I said, to discuss, to talk about, to prepare legislation, to debate issues. Yes, but a trial had to be held in the temple. They were meeting in Caiaphas' house. The trial was illegal. The arrest was illegal. The sentence was illegal. It was held... It, he, he was arrested without a warrant. He was arrested and tried at night, which is illegal. He was tried by people who were prejudiced against him. The trial itself was improperly done. It was held in the wrong place at the wrong time. It had no authority. And then in an attempt to try and get some legitimacy to it. Matthew 27 verse 1 says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. 
When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. They waited till dawn. Okay. They waited till, till just started to get light. Then they reconvened the trial and re-established the verdict. That is so dodgy in legal practice. They hold an illegal trial and then reconvene the trial to make it legal again. This is just so wrong. It is just so wrong. But what's the point? What, what, why are we going into this? What, what's the issue here? <coughs> if he was guilty... What was he guilty of? Now, when they take him to Pilate, they say, this man is making himself king. They didn't accuse him of that. They accused him of blasphemy. Did they have a case to accuse him of blasphemy? Had he said those things, what did he say? Let's have a look in Mark. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. We'll start at verse 5. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoned in their hearts, saying, Why does this man speak blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God only? Now, give these guys credit for this. They have heard Jesus say, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. He's looked down at this man who was, who was paralysed and he says, Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the, who were listening said, Hang on a minute. Only God can forgive sins. And they're dead right. Absolutely, they were correct. They understood this. Only God can forgive sins. And for a man to say this, it's blasphemy. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit what they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Which is it, whether is it easier to say to the sick of, thy, of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk? Now, understand what he's saying here. He's saying to these people, which is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? For a man, which is it easier to say? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have to prove anything. The hard one is to say, pick up your bed and walk because then he's got to do it. So he saith to the sick of the palsy, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately arose, took up the bed, and went forth. 
In other words, what he was saying was, if I'm a man, the easy bit is to say your sins are forgiven because I don't have to prove anything there. But if I say to him, get up and walk, and he doesn't, you know I've got no power. So he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And he proves to them all that he has the power not just to raise up those who are paralysed, but to forgive sins. Proving what? That he was God. That when he said, son, thy sins have, are forgiven thee, he had the authority to do it. Over in John chapter 10. What I'm getting at here is that he was putting himself in this position previously. John chapter 10 verse 31. John 10 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him and Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, Not for a good work we stone thee, but for blasphemy, because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Very clear. He said he was God. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. And the Jews said, you're making yourself God. And to us, that's blasphemy unless it's true. Ah, the only way that that's not blasphemy is if it is true. John chapter 5. Verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath but, by, and, but said also that God was his father making himself equal with God. Okay, do we get the, the, whole, the, the whole point here? The charge of blasphemy was correct if Jesus was just a man because he made himself equal with God. The world today looks for gradations, shades of grey. Yes, and I'll, you know how many shades too. But God sees things in black and white. He sees things in right and wrong, true and false, yes and no. So, was Jesus guilty or innocent? He made himself equal with God. The only way that he is not guilty of blasphemy is if he is God made flesh. If he is the eternal coexistent with the Father. If he is God himself. 
If he's not, then he's a liar. If he's not, then he's crazy. And Jesus Christ was not crazy. I have met crazy. I have seen crazy up close and personal. He is not. Jesus Christ is not crazy. I think of the person who told me that they were fairly confident that their Jedi lightsaber would stop a train. He, that's crazy. No, he's not crazy. He's not a liar. Liars don't die for lies. No one who's as good as he was could be a demon, a liar, or crazy. Some people say that, you know, oh, I, I don't have the faith to believe in Jesus. It's not a matter of, of working up, you know, some faith inside you. It's a matter of deciding on the evidence looking at the evidence, believing the testimony and rendering a verdict. Is he guilty or innocent? Is he holy or evil? Is he good or bad? The question is, did God come down and walk amongst us? Did human eyes behold the creator of the universe? Did mortal mouths share bread with the eternal son of God? And did evil men Put him to death even though he was innocent. It all hinges on this. Was he guilty or innocent? Why? Why is that so important? Because listen, it required an innocent victim to pay for the sins of the guilty. If Jesus Christ had been guilty of blasphemy, he could not pay for your sins. He would need to pay for his own. It is absolutely essential for the forgiveness of our own sins, for the rescue of our own souls, that the trial of Jesus Christ was utterly corrupt that it rendered a guilty verdict to an innocent person it is so necessary we need to understand that our deliverance is dependent upon Christ's innocence that he was convicted wrongly of a crime he did not commit because he was the Son of God and he was able to make those claims and he was able to forgive those sins and yet he was sent to the cross. Why? Because people would not believe it is not that they could not believe or that they did not believe it is that they would not believe
when Peter was preaching in the book of Acts, he describes the people who did this as illegal, evil men. He says that by corrupt and improper things, he was whom God it says in in, um, in Acts chapter 2 Acts chapter 2 interesting thing there Peter's preaching and he says you men of Israel Acts 2.22 hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you, you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. By wicked hands. You know what that word wicked is? It doesn't mean evil. Its literal word means lawless, without authority without legal standing by lawless hands they have taken and slain our saviour was put to death illegally improperly it was the just for the unjust the righteous for the unrighteous I'll understand this clearly he died for us, the innocent for the guilty. He was innocent of the crime he was charged with. He was not guilty by reason of the fact he didn't do it. And he was not guilty by the fact the trial was improper and illegal. The decision was immoral. It was wrong. It's an unusual word, wrong. It's a word our society doesn't like. Because it doesn't like things to be right or wrong. But brethren, there is right and wrong. And what was done to him was wrong. It was wrong from a moral sense. It was wrong from a legal sense. It was wrong from a theological sense. But brethren, for our benefit, it was so right. Because without that, we have no hope. We have no hope at all. He loved us so much that he let this happen to him. So what are you going to do about it? You can't go back and change it. It's done. 
The only thing you can do is to thank God for what He did for you and realize that the price and the penalty for your sin has been paid. What can you do? In Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, Moses says to the people of Israel, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That's what you can do. Choose life. Choose the Son of God. Choose to put your faith in Him. Choose to accept His penalty for your sin. Choose Him and choose life. If you're, it may be today that, that you've only just been thinking about this in just a, a, a way of a, a, a intellectual acceptance. That you've just been thinking about it as a way of, yes, these things are true. You've been thinking about it as something, yes, this is historical facts. If it's not in your soul, then it's not doing you any good. This is not a matter of understanding what happened on a certain date and time and place. It's understanding what this means for you and for your soul and for your sin. If you do not accept these things as the payment for your sin, then you have missed the whole point. You have missed what this is all about. This is all about our sin and his sacrifice. If you're not saved today, if you haven't accepted Christ as your saviour, if you haven't reached out and realised that his innocence paid for your guilt, today is the day to do it. Today is the day to realise that there is no other way. Today is the day to be reconciled to God. If you're not sure about this sort of stuff, if you're going, hang on, it's all a bit much for me. I'm, I'm, I'm really just not quite up to handling all this stuff. Then talk to our pastor. Talk to his wife. Talk to me. Talk to someone who will be only too delighted to explain to you how you can be saved and pass from death unto life today. Thank you.